podcast where the food processing team takes you behind the scenes of the food and beverage industry. I am your host, Erin Hallstrom. This week, I sat down with Editor-in-Chief Dave Fusaro and Senior Editor Pan Dimitrakakis to talk about our biggest story each year, the Food Processing Top 100. Listen in as we talk about this year's list, including our discussion of the how, the who, and the why of the biggest food companies in the U.S. and Canada. We also get an update on how food and beverage companies are handling the coronavirus pandemic at their facilities and whether or not comfort food will be around for the long haul. Dave, we just released the 45th annual list of the top food and beverage companies. Can you give us a 30,000-foot view of how things look for food right now? Uh, sure. But uh, first, let me explain where, where these figures come from, because they are unique to uh, food processing and, and our thought process here. Uh, we rank these companies by U.S. value-added, consumer-ready, not necessarily branded, but consumer-ready food and beverage products that were produced in U.S. and Canadian manufacturing plants. That's a lot of qualifiers, I realize, but we're trying to rank these companies as North American food manufacturers, not necessarily marketers. So um, Pepsi, uh, even though they're the first one on the list and they have $67 billion worth of sales uh, as a total company, only about a little more than half, 40, $41 billion, uh, are made in U.S. and Canadian manufacturing plants. Uh, they're still number one on the list, but we don't give them credit for the entire $67 billion. Cargill, if we, if we listed companies by their total sales, Cargill, which has uh, ocean-going vessels and iron ore mines and uh, train cars all over the world, they would be number one at $113 billion. But we think of Cargill only as the meat company. So instead of being number one, they're number 13 with sales of just well, an estimated $8.9 billion. ADM isn't on the list at all. And, uh, you know, because they're an agricultural company. Nothing they do is in uh, consumer-ready form. Monster Beverage and Kind Snacks aren't on the list because they don't manufacture a single product of their own. Everything they do is uh, done by contract manufacturers. And um, while it's a great list, uh, a scorecard of 100 teams, if you will. Collectively, it does give a picture of the financial health of the uh, food and beverage industry. And, uh, and that checkup right now looks uh, pretty good for big food. Because 45 of these 100 companies saw sales increases in whatever fiscal year just ended for them, and only 13 reported decreases. Now, the rest were all within a plus or minus uh, 5%. So, sorry, finally getting to answer your question. They they had a pretty respectable 2019, which is where most of these figures come from. And most are having a phenomenal first half of 2020 because of the pandemic. Was there anything unusual about this year's list? Anything that jumped out at you or surprised you? Now, nothing terribly unusual, but there were some good Nice surprises in it. Uh, in terms of sales, um, 
General Mills, which has been struggling uh, in the last couple of years, they, they were up nearly a billion dollars uh, in sales in their fiscal 2020. They actually had a fiscal year that ended uh, May 31st, and we were able to get that figure in. But two caveats uh, to that. They bought a billion dollars in sales when they bought Blue Buffalo in 2018. And, uh, yeah, the figure we used was a fiscal 2020 figure, so that includes um, – the first five months of this year, which were very good months for most of the big food companies. Um, ConAgra went through uh, several years of, of a planned shrinkage as they divested businesses that were underperforming or just didn't fit the new strategy. Uh, but they made a huge 2018 acquisition to Pinnacle Foods. So with a full year of Pinnacle under its belt, ConAgra's sales were up $1.5 billion, 16% up. Now, Anheuser-Busch um, didn't increase its, its North American sales any, but uh, parent AB InBev, uh, their profits doubled from $4.4 billion in uh, 2018 to $9.2 billion in 2019. Some other profit stories uh, were, were interesting. Uh, Kraft Heinz turned around that $10 billion loss in 2018 to nearly $2 billion billion dollars in profit in 2019, although that 2018 uh, loss was mostly due to uh, financial things, write-downs of some of the value of the brands. Brazilian meat company, JBS, for years has been struggling to make profits because of so many acquisitions, but it went from only $79 million in profits in 2018 to $1.5 billion in 2019. That's a pretty nice turnaround for them. But on the other hand, though, Constellation Brands, which has just been awash in profits in recent years, they decided to invest all those profits in a Canadian cannabis company, Canopy Growth, uh, which for 2019 dragged down its profitability. So instead of $3 billion in profits Constellation Brands had in 2018, they had just $21 million in 2019. I know that I, when getting this ready for all of the online stuff that we do with the list, that we had a few companies fall off, which obviously lent some room to adding a few on to the list. What should we know about these newcomers to the top 100? Yeah, we uh, companies come and go every year, and and this year, uh, you know, we lost a few. Uh, Dean Foods, which, uh, you know, had filed for bankruptcy, um, they're off the list. They're now part of uh, – most of it is part of Dairy Farmers of America. Keystone Foods, um, which is now a part of Tyson, and Cot Corporation, uh, another one that dropped off the list. They divested almost all of their packaged – all of their packaged beverage business and now essentially a water delivery company. So those are three names that uh, disappeared from the list this year, and we replaced them with um, companies that should have been on the list all along, but they're private, very, very quietly, uh, privately held companies. Wonderful Company, the maker of you know the pistachios and uh, the cuties, and uh, some more value out of Fiji Water, for instance. Uh, Ocean Spray. I never realized they had a billion dollars in. Um, value-added uh, snacks and, and beverages, you know, not just commodity cranberries. And Mountain Farms, one of those uh, 
there are many of these privately held poultry companies that, uh, you know, they're $2 billion and just we never had them on our radar before. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting list this year for sure. I know I've we've worked in tandem on this for over a decade, and it's always interesting to see how the list evolves. For those listening um, in their favorite podcast app, we will have links in the show notes about where you can find the list itself, and you can read more of the analysis. Kind of when I switch switch gears a little bit and go into how, you know, last month on this podcast, we were talking about how the pandemic was impacting labor in food and beverage. So, Pan, can you give us an update on where things are one month later? Well, from where I'm sitting, things are still tense, and they're going to stay that way uh, for the foreseeable future, especially in the meat and poultry sector. Uh, there uh, currently is a lawsuit by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, which is the largest union that represents meatpacking workers, to overturn uh, a USDA waiver that allowed faster speeds in poultry plants during the crisis. And also um, legislation has been introduced by Democratic senators and representatives that would roll back waivers on line speeds that the USDA has granted over the years to pork and other meat and poultry processing plants. So line speeds is the big issue here. It has been for a long time, for many years before the pandemic, but the pandemic has just brought the situation into uh, sharper relief. And uh, the, the situation is very tense, and it's going to stay that way as long as workers have legitimate fears for their health and even their lives uh, in coming to work. And so basically that's going to stay there until the pandemic goes away or is brought under control. That's not a very rosy assessment, but I can't think of any other way to say it. It definitely brings up something interesting. What considerations should companies be making for the longer term as it relates to how their plants are designed or set up? Well, that's the $64,000 question, or should I say the $64 million question. Um, I don't know, and I'm not sure that anybody really does. Uh, 45 minutes before we started doing this podcast, I put up a news item about how Schwann's, the frozen pizza company that makes uh, Red Baron and Tony's and other big uh, frozen pizza brands, uh, they are uh, massively expanding their plant in Salina, Kansas, which at 550,000 square feet is already the biggest frozen pizza plant in the world. Now, in their release announcing this, they uh, said that the plan will include, quote, investments in technology and protocols designed to minimize risks during pandemic situations. Now, I would dearly love to know exactly what that means and what they have in mind because it's becoming increasingly clear that uh, keeping people distant, social distancing, uh, is 
one of the only truly effective ways to suppress the pandemic, but that's precisely what is difficult or impossible in most food plants as they're currently constructed. As I think I said in the last podcast, plants are designed in terms of microbial safety to keep the food from being contaminated. Nobody ever thought that they would be in a situation where the workers have to be protected from contaminating each other. Now, uh, for future plans, it really depends on uh, how much danger you think there is of a new pandemic coming along in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years or beyond. and it's a very cruel dilemma because if you decide to go uh, full safety and institute social distancing uh, for your workers on a permanent basis, that is going to add tremendously to the cost of the plant. Uh, other strategies to enable social distancing, such as line slowdowns, speed slowdowns, and automation, will also be expensive. And so the person who's planning the new plant has to predict, do I want to sink all of these costs into my plant to be prepared for the next pandemic? What happens if the next pandemic doesn't materialize? Well, then I've sunk all of these costs into my plant and I've put myself at a competitive disadvantage. So all I can say is I am very glad that I am not in charge of designing a new meat plant or other kind of food plant right now. Mm. It'll be interesting to watch, for sure. So we're five months deep into the pandemic, and we've seen and heard the toll COVID-19 has taken on the labor market for food facilities. But what about the supply chain? What has to be done, what has to be done to straighten out for the long term the kinds of kinks in the supply chain we've seen during the pandemic? Well, The biggest problem that we've seen so far is that the supply chain has proved inelastic. Uh, There are too many choke points, and it's too hard, it's been too hard in many cases to make the pivot between food service and retail. Uh, When I say too many choke points, what I mean is that uh, production, especially in the meat sector, has become centralized to the point where if you take even a handful of plants offline, that will have profound effects on the meat supply. Uh, You you look at other countries like Mexico where production is much more decentralized and uh, they didn't experience the kinds of interruptions that the United States did. Now, um, meat production got centralized Uh, the way it did for a reason, because it's efficient and it gives consumers what they want, which is cheap product. Uh, And um, I don't really think that as a matter of public policy, uh, the the United States or any state government can mandate uh, decentralization in the the meat industry. That's just not how we roll. We don't tell private industry what to do. Uh, So the only thing I can think of is that if the current setup uh, that has proved uh, inadequate or problematic to meet the demands of the pandemic should go on causing problems, then uh, there's just going to have to be a, a market-based remedy. The industry is going to have to evolve 
to such a point where um, the, the choke points don't exist or don't exist to the extent that they do. And um, as for the, um, the pivot between food service and retail, we saw that especially uh, badly in the dairy sector because um, a lot of dairy processing was set up specifically for food service, uh, especially the half pints of milk that kids drink in their lunches and uh, food service cheese. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the American milk supply gets consumed in cheese for pizza, cheeseburgers, whatever uh, a restaurant wants to put cheese on. When that got interrupted, the processing plants had a hard time making the shift to um, retail where the demand existed. So in future, uh, the only thing I can think of is the industry will probably want to look at building greater flexibility into the system, uh, perhaps through packaging automation. And also, the government ought to think about what it can do from a regulatory standpoint to make these kinds of pivots easier, uh, to enable packaging maybe to switch between uh, food service and retail uh, with uh, not quite so many uh, labeling and other requirements. Uh, and so, yeah, the supply chain is going to be a um, major issue, and I think that it's going to work itself out uh, according to market forces, and hopefully with some intelligent guidance uh, on the part of the government. Okay. Well, speaking of pivots, let's do a soft pivot into products and product availability. What consumption trends have you noticed in the last few months that are starting to take shape? Well, the most overwhelming one, I think, in terms of its impact on the industry is that more people are cooking their own food and eating it at home. Uh, and that is directly accounts, in my opinion, for the surge that we've seen in retail sales uh, simply because going out to restaurants is a reduced option. Uh, and so um, obviously this affects companies directly in terms of what they make. Do they make grocery, food service, or convenience store products? Um, the more grocery and the less food service and convenience store products uh, there are, the better. And, and, and that has almost a direct correlation in the quarterly reports that are starting to come in. Uh, there just is almost a direct correlation between the presence that a company has in retail and food service respectively, re respectively and its performance uh, in the last quarter. Uh, now, the other trend that we've seen has been, is related to the first one, and that's an increase in comfort foods. Uh, for a long time, consumers, or so the conventional wisdom went, uh, were striving to eat healthier and were abandoning the so-called comfort foods uh, of, of their youth in many cases that were high in sugar, salt, fat, whatever. Uh, however, they seem to be turning back to them. Uh, to give just one statistic, Eggo waffles, the frozen waffles from Kellogg, uh, in the second quarter, uh, sales were up 
26% over the same quarter for last year. So I have one last final question for you based on what you mm-hmm. just told us. Do you think those trends will stick around for the long haul? I have to believe that the, the cooking at home trend probably will. I mean, I don't think that once this all goes away, uh, may that blessed day arrive soon, uh, I don't think that once this goes away uh, that people will cook at home maybe quite as much as they are now. However, once you develop the knack, you never really lose it. And people are going to see that being able to expand the repertoire of at-home meals uh, gives them uh, the versatility they need uh, to you know, feed their family better and especially to save money. Now, that's why I think this trend, really, this trend is really going to last because for a long time we're going to be seeing a lot of economic fallout. There's going to be, there is and there will be a lot of economic insecurity. People will be looking to cut spending wherever they can and um, cooking at home is a great way to do that. Now as for comfort foods, that one I'm not sure about uh, simply because um, people still have scales in their homes. You know, um, they're going to, uh, there's already jokes about the COVID-19, meaning the 19-pound weight gain. Uh, so I think it's, I'm purely speculating here, but I think it's possible that um, uh, people might decide that their waistlines need a break, and so they would ease up on the comfort foods. But as I said, that's pretty much just a guess on my part. Yeah, it seems like these last <clears throat> last four months of the year seem like they're going to be anyone's guest, guess entirely. So with that said, that about does it for my questions. I did want to ask before we sign off for this episode, is there any uh, any upcoming projects that either of you would like to plug? Oh, I do. I do. Uh, <laughs> since most of this discussion was about our top 100 list, um, the list is, you know, in print is just the tip of a very big iceberg. If you go online uh, to www.foodprocessing.com slash top 100, that's foodprocessing.com slash top 100. And you'll see the, the table with the 100 names and several hundred numbers, but all the vertical columns are sortable. So you can click company name and sort the list, make it alphabetic, or sort it by net income. Uh, or even better, if you click on any company name, uh, you'll get a, a company profile. And that includes headquarters, address, top executives, subsidiaries, food categories, even brands. That does it for this week's episode. Join us next time where I'll be talking to our second R&D team of the year for 2020, Good Foods. Be sure you head to our website to check out the top 100 for 2020. And also make sure you check out the voting for a green plant of the year by visiting www.foodprocessing.com slash green plant voting. Those are dashes in between green plant and voting. We've got four contenders this year. Chobani, OSI Group, Danone North America, and Bimbo Bakeries USA. Thanks for listening, and be sure you're subscribed to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. Catch you around later.